Well, it's the fourth week of our message series uh, that I've been going through here in July on, uh, on uh, lessons from the life of Moses. And uh, so far in this series, uh, we have been looking at how God took Moses on this process uh, of, of transforming Moses. I repeat it every week. I know some of you have been here all four weeks and we're like, oh, you got to say it again. But we have a lot of people in and out now during summer, a lot of holidays and stuff. So no doubt some of you have been here or not been here for a couple of weeks. But, but we've been looking at this process, how God took Moses from being this ordinary person who couldn't be used by him, and he took him on this process, transforming him into an ordinary person who could be used by God, right? And, and the whole thing we've been talking about in this series is that at no point was Moses ever superhuman or a superhero. He was always an ordinary human being. And, and there is no such thing as superhero, superhuman beings. There is just regular, frail, ordinary human beings. But some ordinary human beings cannot be used by God. And there's no power of God in their life. And other regular, ordinary human beings, the power of God is all over their life. And God uses them. And so they're both regular, but one, the power of God is there, and one, the power is not. And we've been looking at this in this series. We've been looking at how God took Moses through this process, moving him from here, unusable, to usable. And so we've looked at, we've gotten through all four stages. We've looked at four stages or seasons that God took Moses through in order to transform him into a usable human being where the power of God could really rest in him. And uh, in the first couple of weeks, we looked at the first uh, three stages. We looked at the, the wants to save the world stage, the disillusionment stage, the encounter with God leading to grudging obedience stage. And then last week, we finally got to stage four. And stage four is, is the season of Moses' life where Moses finally became usable for God. And we looked last week at the one thing, not 10 steps, not five things, not two or three things melded together. We looked at the one thing, one thing transformed Moses' life, utterly transformed him from a doubting, fearful, compromising person and it transformed him into one of the most persevering, overcoming leaders. I mean, he faced down some of the most daunting challenges he would go on in the rest of his life that any human being has ever faced in history. And we looked at the one thing. The one thing that changed Moses' life was he began to meet with God and walk with God and know God. And that's the thing. There is no process to this. There's no 10-step thing. I don't mean by no process. There's not time. Yes, God takes us through process. What I mean is it's not complicated. To change your life, to become usable to God, to have the power of God come on your life, there's one thing. You have to begin to walk with him and know him. That's everything, knowing God. And there's something that happens when we puny human beings, when we go into the presence of God Almighty, the one who made the universe, who made us, when we go into his presence, we can't, we can't help but be changed. And, uh, and so basically what we've done so far in this series is we've uh, essentially, I've, we've gone verse by verse through Exodus chapters 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. We've, we've worked through those five chapters, basically verse by verse for the most part, just worked our way systematically through them. And we've watched how, you know, Exodus chapter 2, we saw Moses, he's cocky, he's overconfident, and he thinks he's going to do great things for God, and God says, I can't use you. He sends him out into the desert for 40 years to have his, all of his illusions smashed. And then in Exodus 3, at the end of the 40 years in the desert, God meets with Moses at the burning bush and calls him back into ministry. He hasn't thrown uh, Moses on a garbage heap. He comes and calls him back. And of course, we saw in Exodus 3, Moses gives a very grudging yes, right? Very grudging. And then in Exodus 4, we see Moses is now on his way to obey. He's moving from the wilderness and he's going to Egypt, but we see that he is full of compromise and he's full of fear and he's full of doubt. 
And then in Exodus 5, which we looked at last week, Moses uh, encounters his first major obstacle after saying yes to God. And it's right there at the end of Exodus chapter 5 that we see for the first time. It's the first time you read, you know, the first five chapters of Exodus of Moses' life. And it's the first time in the recorded story of Moses' life that he cries out to God and turns to him in prayer. And that marks the turning point. And that's what we looked at stage four. The end of chapter five marks the turning point. It's the first time in his life where we see him turning to God and crying out to him in prayer. And after that, it's pretty much all he ever does. I mean, you read the rest of Exodus, you read Numbers, you read Deuteronomy, and you just see story after story after story. After the end of Exodus 5, that's how Moses deals with problems. He turns to God, he cries out to him. And every time he needs help, and every time he's in trouble, and every time he needs wisdom, he turns to God, he gets along with God in prayer. And so what I was planning to do today to end this series was, my idea was to take uh, a few of those stories, because there's so many of them. I mean, we could just, we could do a huge series for months looking at stories where, of where Moses turned to God and met with God. In each story, there's so much to learn. In each story, you, you learn something new about the kind of circumstances when you can turn to God. You learn something new about God. You learn something new about how God works in answer to prayer. And so my, my goal today originally was I was just going to pick three or four of those stories and I had a couple that I was really wanting to get to and I would put those in this message and we would just see what, what we would learn from how Moses turned to God. So I picked the one that I thought was the shortest one. I would start with that one and then I would get to the ones I really wanted to by the end of this message and I worked all week and by the end of this message I realized I was only going to get through one because there's just so much meat there. So what I'm going to do is uh, next weekend, uh, Chris Puach, Pastor Chris is going to be speaking and I am taking a week off from preaching, and he's going to speak on, actually, and he's been planning this for about a month, he is going to be speaking on the spiritual disciplines, which works just perfectly with what we're talking about with Moses right now, talking about the Holy Spirit planning things in advance. And then after that, I'm, I'm speaking two more weekends before I go on holidays, and so I'm going to come back, and I'm just going to do some more stories about Moses uh, in August. We're just going to keep going on this series. I think there's just so much uh, good stuff to do there, but today we're going to look at we're going to look at one story. There's lots we're going to encounter about God. Lots we're going to be encouraged about life. So bow your heads with me, close your eyes, and then we'll get into this. Heavenly Father, uh, praying to you again. Love it. And uh, God, I just pray as we get into this story now, I pray that you would focus our hearts, focus our minds. I pray that you would use me to speak your truth in Jesus' name. Amen. A little bit of background. The story I want to, I want to look at today is found in Exodus 15, 22 to 26. Uh, and like I said, it's a short little story, but there's lots there. Uh, but before we can get into Exodus 15, 22 to 26, you have to have background. You, you can't get this story, the story I want to get to, you can't get there until you feel where the Israelites were at going into that story, okay? So you have to first feel where they're coming from before I can get to verses 22 to 26. So just to give you a little background, what's happening in Exodus 14 and 15 right before this story in verses 22 to 26? And what's happening is the, the parting of the Red Sea, okay? One of the most spectacular, famous miracles in all of human history is, is what happens right before the story that I want to talk about today, okay? And, and you have to just feel it a bit. Before you can even understand what we're getting today, you have to feel where they were at, okay? So let's imagine now. I mean, the parting of the Red Sea is a real uh, spiritual mountaintop experience, okay? These people have just walked through, it says in Exodus 14, the last verse of Exodus 14, it says that they walked through. God split the, the sea. He split the ocean apart, and they walked through on dry land with a wall of water on their right and a wall of water on their left, okay? Just, I mean, wow. 
right? I mean, we've, we've, we, we know about this miracle so much, I don't think we actually stop to think. I mean, when Jesus comes back, I am going to be asking him, this is another one of those heavenly PVR moments, Lord, I, show me, I want to see the replay. I hope he's got 3D holographic uh, technology or something because I want to walk through and poke my finger in there and there's a shark or something, I don't know, but they walk through like this, right? Walls, both sides, water. And then they get to the opposite bank, they turn around, they're now, I mean, so on the one side, wow, then they turn around, now it's a little scary because the Egyptian army is sweeping in behind them to follow them and to kill them and right in front of their eyes, uh, Yahweh, the God of the universe, brings the waters crashing down on top of them. I can just see, you know, chariot wheels shooting up through the roiling waters. And they watch as God miraculously delivers them. And I, I just, I don't even know if we can imagine, if we can even begin to scrape the surface of what they must have felt. I mean, what must these people have felt? They have been in bondage. Think about it. We, 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 we do not know anything about the kind of suffering that they went through. Everybody that is standing there on the banks of the Red, uh, I, almost, I said the Red River, actually, in the 9 o'clock service. It may came, come out again today. I don't know why. But, uh, but they weren't on the banks of the Red River. They were standing on the banks of the Red Sea, okay? And all these people know, every person there on those banks, all they've known in their life is the most hideous slavery and oppression you can imagine. That's all they've known. They've never known anything else. Every single one of them, that's been their whole life. I mean, these people have every day without rest, they have, they have been subjected to the most brutal treatment and hard labor. I mean, every one of them there knows what it's like to see a, a family member, a child, a wife, a husband abused or killed in front of your very eyes. I mean, they have, they have just experienced horror their entire lives. That's all they know, in brutal slavery. And now, in front of their eyes, God has split an ocean apart like this, walked them through, and then they turned around and watched him drown the entire Egyptian army right in front of their, their eyes. Uh, when I think about this scene, it will not have been, you know, kind of golf clapping on the side. Ooh, that was nice. Okay? I mean, when I think of this scene on the banks of the Red River, I mean, scenes of, you know, Braveheart go through my head. I just see guys... They must have been shouting, veins, you know, just popping out of their necks, just, just an absolute roar of joy and ecstasy must have just, you know, erupted from in them. And, you know, as I was, as I was meditating, because, you know, when, you're, when you go through Scripture, we, we have to learn not to just, we just read over these words. You've got to take time and try to Enter in, because otherwise none of it makes sense. Because the Bible wasn't just written for your mind. Yeah, parts of it are for your mind too, but the Bible is primarily written to your heart. And you really can't get these stories if you just glaze over them in your mind. And so I was thinking this week, I was trying to enter in, because again, what the story we're going to get to in verses 22 to 26, it, it won't come home to you if, you're, if you can't enter the Red Sea a little bit in your heart. And I was trying to put myself there. I was trying to feel what they felt on this spiritual mountaintops of spiritual mountaintops. I mean, they were on Mount Everest of spiritual mountaintops right there. I mean, right in front of their eyes, God has delivered them. And I was trying to think, is there, is there any parallel in my life I can grasp onto or we can grasp onto where we have ever, you know, shouted like that or felt that kind of electricity? And I, I don't think there really is anything very good because none of us has known bondage like that. So we don't know deliverance quite on that level. But... 
you know, I mean, the only thing that came to my mind that kind of scratches the surface is, is uh, it, you know, it, occasionally there are, there are certain kind of transcendent sporting events sometimes that, that kind of bring us a little bit there, just a scratch. And one that I was thinking about this week as I was meditating, again, I was just, I was trying to feel what the Israelites felt there on the banks of the Red Sea. And, um, and I was thinking back in, in 2001, the first, when, when, that was when we got married, LaDonna and I got married in 2001, and the, and the first thing we did, we, we were here for just a few weeks, and then we were straight off, we went to Korea, South Korea, we lived in Seoul there, and we taught English for a year, uh, our first year marriage, and absolutely loved it there. And one of the things that happened, so we were there from 2001, 2002. In 2002, just a few months before we came home, uh, the, the, uh, Korea hosted the World Cup of Soccer, okay? Now, um, for those of you who don't know anything about sports, okay, the World Cup is the biggest sporting event in the world in human history by far. Like, it's not even close. It is, the Super Bowl is nothing to the World Cup, nothing. The, it's, it's way bigger than the Summer Olympics. I mean, I looked up some stats. Uh, the last uh, World Cup of soccer, it happens every four years, uh, the last World Cup of soccer had 30 billion TV viewers, okay? Now, there's not even that many people in the world, but you had a, a couple billion, two plus billion people watching multiple games. And they just, I mean, they, they count all the viewers, right? So, but you've got more than two billion people are tuning in to watch these things. It's planet-wide hysteria. And it sort of misses us in Canada because we're not big soccer fans, but the rest of the world, this is just unbelievable, okay? And so this... This thing, it's a month-long tournament, who's the best you know, soccer-playing nation in the world, came to Korea there in 2002 while we were there. And, um, and the thing you have to understand is, so going into this, I mean, Korea is not a soccer powerhouse. I mean, they like soccer. I mean, their team is much better than ours here in Canada, but they're not a soccer powerhouse, okay? They're, I, at that point in 2002, they'd only made it to, I think, five World Cups, and they had never, ever made it out of round one, what's called the group stage. So nobody had, nobody had any kind of expectations for the Korean team. They just thought, you know what, We're host, they're, they're hosting the, the thing, they'll play in the group stage, they'll play a couple of games, and then it'll be over and they can keep hosting, and that was really neat. But what people didn't take into account is the fact that the Koreans are like one of the most praying nations in the world, and... Uh, and lots of them were actually praying for the soccer team. I know that because the pastor of the church where we went, which had just under 900,000 members, said he was praying for the Korean soccer team. So, um, <laughs> as a direct result, because no, everybody said, they, I mean, they were ranked very low. They're not going to get out of the group one. They've never done it before. Well, they start winning. And they keep winning and winning and winning. They not only got out of group one, they went through the round of 16. They went through the quarterfinals. They went all the way to the semifinal against Germany. If they would have won the game against Germany, they would have been in the final itself, okay? And the whole world was just in shock. I mean, the, their trail was littered with these big European teams that should have killed them that they, that they took out of the tournament. It was just unbelievable. And as they were winning these games, and I mean, miraculous game after miraculous game after miraculous game, this sort of uh, fanaticism, this kind of hysteria just gripped that whole little country there, Korea. Lots of people, but it's a little space. And it was literally, I mean, I've, I've never experienced anything like it, but it just gripped it. And people were going out, they were all buying these, uh, these red t-shirts uh, because the Korean team, they, they were called the Reds. They, they, they wore red on the field. And everybody was buying these red t-shirts that said stuff like Korea fighting. And it's one of the things I love about Asia. They, always, they like to put bad English on their t-shirts. But uh, uh, anyway, and everybody was going out by the millions. I mean, they were just, everybody had one of these t-shirts, okay? And uh, I even went and got one. I'm a tall, skinny, white guy, and everything there was about three sizes too small. The thing came to be about like here and about to here. <laughs> but I had one, Korea fighting. And uh, they bought so many of these t-shirts. This is true. 
they report in the paper. I, I remember we were reading it there at the school. We were, we were teaching. We could not believe it. They actually started to run out of red dye in Korea. They were selling some of these t-shirts. They were having to get emergency shipments in from Japan of red dye. And there was a point there, if you got your shirt late there in the World Cup, where the, the, the red, the Korea fighting, which was supposed to be red, the, a lot of these shirts became, were pink and light red because they were, they were watering it down, okay? So it was like a mania. And, and uh, one of the things they did, and it was just, it was unbelievable, is in Seoul, where we were living there, which is, a, you know, again, it's, you got 10 or 15 plus million people packed into not even a very big area. And in, in 13 different locations, I think it was 13, but in 13 different locations inside of Seoul and parks and stuff, they set up these gigantic screens so that people could, instead of just watching at home by yourself, you could gather en masse in these different locations in Seoul and you could watch the Korea games, because obviously we couldn't all get into the stadiums, but we could watch at these screens, you could watch the Korea, the Korea games. And, uh, and it was unbelievable. Um, they had, at these 13 locations, organizers estimated they had uh, between 6 and 7 million people who would go out onto the streets to watch these games at these 13 locations. Okay, that, that is just, again, here in North America, we don't, have a, we don't have a parallel to that. I mean, that's an average of half a million, 500,000 people per screen. There, there was one in downtown Seoul where they would shut down the, all the, the big main street. There was a huge plaza there where they would get two million people out to that one screen. I have the pictures to prove it. It is stunning. Everybody wearing red Korea fighting shirts, okay? Unbelievable. So anyway, I, of course, I, I love that kind of stuff. Just craziness, huge crowds, hysteria. That's me all the way. I went to one game at one of the, there was a screen close to our our place, about a 15-minute subway ride, right along the Han River. There was, the Han River goes right through Seoul, and then there's, there's a big gap along the river, because there aren't very many open spaces in Seoul, and so they've got some, some parks along the river there, and there was a park like that with a huge open space, uh, you know, just a short subway ride from our place. So uh, I, I went to a few of the games there, and I, I took Ladon to one. She never came back to another one. But... Uh, <laughs> Was one of the, the game that sticks out to me is a game against Italy, and they were playing it. They shouldn't have made it to this game in the first place. Nobody said, they, you're never going to make it that far. They made it that far. Now they're facing Italy, who is a soccer powerhouse, okay? And everything's, okay, well, they shouldn't have made it this far. They're going to get killed this time, okay? And so, anyway, I show up in my too small Korea fighting shirt, and I come out of the subway to this game and at this park where I watch a couple games, and the, the sight that greets my eyes, I mean, I, I wish I could kind of just transport you there to see this, because you come over the road, and then the park was down off the road, and, and then there's the river, and then the screen. You come over, and all you see, as far as you can see, is literally, it's a mass, it's a sea of people, as far as you can see. I mean, I'm talking, uh, 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 it is wall to wall. It's shoulder to shoulder. Again, we don't really have a parallel here in North America. Here in North America, if we get a big crowd, you might get a really big crowd to, you know, to the beach or to a, a, an air show, to a sporting event. But when we talk about packed, there's still room to move. Like you can, if it's packed at the air show or packed at the beach or packed at a football game or whatever, you can still, you know, if you need to get a hot dog or you need to go to the bathroom, you can get there. When I'm talking wall to wall people here at this park, I'm talking about people literally like sardines everywhere. I could see the roofs of the bathrooms in that park, and if I had had an emergency, I would not have been able to get there, not even close. It was so packedly tight with people. There was trees lining the road that went on the outside of this park. There was people in the trees. There was apartments. I'm not lying. It's like Zacchaeus, okay? And you've got apartments all on the other side of the road looking down into this park, 
all of the balconies, it's, it's just people, the roads, it's just people. And I got there a bit late, I was there about an hour before game time, and so I was right near the back. And, uh, and there, you couldn't get closer, you just stood there right like this, and everybody squeezed in behind you, and then up in the trees. And uh, so I'm watching this game, fortunately I'm you know, a bit taller than most of the Koreans, and standing there in my two small shirts, stick out like a sore thumb, skinny white guy from Canada, and I'm watching this game. And, the game goes exactly how everybody just thinks. I mean, Italy, they have amazing skill, they're an amazing team, and they were really dominating the Koreans in ball possession, all kinds of stuff. Um, but somehow, and again, you have to think some praying had something to do with this, after, you know, a soccer game, for those of you who don't know, is 90 minutes long. After 80 minute, 88 minutes, okay, there's only two minutes left in this game, Somehow, I mean, through fluky stuff, I mean, the Italians hit a few goal posts, there's some other fluky occurrences, somehow the Italians are only ahead one to nothing. But they are ahead. And where I'm standing there, there's really no more hope left. We've watched this whole game, and you're kind of down, because nothing's happened. 88 minutes, Koreans haven't done nothing, and here's the Italians, and they're going to win. There's two minutes to go, and it's over, and you just think, and you kind of feel sad, because it's like, well, it's been a great run this last couple of weeks, you know, all these games and all this excitement, and you're kind of sad, because it's over. And then, another miracle happens. 90 seconds to go in the game, minute and a half. Again, they're not doing nothing. And another miracle happens, the, the Italians, there's a clearing pass in the penalty area of the Italians' goal. The ball bounces awkwardly off the one Italian defender's leg, goes straight to a Korean who just happens to be there. There's an open net, he boots it in, okay? Now, remember, we're talking here at this park where I'm standing, there are a couple hundred thousand people for sure. We're not talking thousands, we're not talking tens of thousands, we're talking, we're talking in the hundreds. This is a massive crowd of people. And everybody's eyes, the, the ball goes into the net, I'll never forget, and there's this split second, there's no noise yet, and everybody's eyes just go, we can't believe what we're seeing. <laughs> Did that ball just go in the net? And then, Immediately after, there's this split second of just, and then, I mean, there's only a minute and a half to go in the game, and then this roar, again, like I have, it, I've been to many sporting events in my life, I have never heard a roar like this. Literally, it felt like the ground was shaking. This electricity just swept through the crowd from the front to the back, and here's me again. I mean, I'm a Canadian, what am I doing? Yeah, like this, and we are all shouting just this, incredible shout is echoing out uh, literally across the city. The whole city is shouting with us. And the next thing we know, people are hugging each other. People are crying. I've got tears in my eyes. I'm thinking, what's the matter with me? <laughs> and they're hugging each other and stuff. And then, and just to finish this, this story off, those of you who, who follow any of this stuff at all will know that just a few minutes later, then the game went into overtime. And then in overtime, the Koreans scored again another miracle goal in overtime. They won the game. They moved on. And... Uh, and at, at, after the, the second goal, they won this game 2-1. I mean, you, you just, it, people dancing, bottle rockets. That part was a little scary, but thousands of bottle rockets going off around me. <laughs> and then the next thing, the next thing was the most incredible thing. I, I now know what it feels like to be one of those fish. You know those schools of fish in the ocean and they all move together? Because the whole crowd turned around and there was no resisting it. There was no, like, I'm going to do my own thing now. The whole crowd went like this. There was this six-lane highway that went on the outside of this park, and we all marched down as one void. There was no going against the stream. There was no traffic moving. We all marched down together. The whole street, hundreds of, I think it means go Korea. If there's any Koreans here, my apologies on my bad Korean, but we're all shouting, and here's me. I actually had, the next day, this is true, I, w I went to teach English. I had these little kids there. They had actually caught 
me on TV. They said, Sun Sitting, we saw you because I'm this skinny white guy. I just stick out. <laughs> they said they saw me on the TV. But anyway, nonetheless, you say, now what on earth, what on earth does that have to do with the Bible? Well, very little, but let me just, let's bring it back now. I mean, I just say that because I was, we were trying to, I'm trying to get into this thing. If you go back to the Red Sea, that experience of, of absolute joy, this shout, this energy, this electricity, it, that would, I just experienced a little scratch there in Korea, what they must have experienced several million people there on the banks of the Red Sea after that kind of deliverance. I mean, what they must have experienced, I don't think what they experienced on the Red Sea, I don't think it'll ever be repeated in, in, on earth with just human beings until Jesus comes back. I mean, I was imagining that, just to rabbit trail one more time here just shortly, but I was thinking about, you know, the first worship uh, service we have after Jesus gets back. And there's millions of us, and there's angels there too, and, and Jesus isn't there yet, and we're all waiting in anticipation. Millions of us. And then all of a sudden the door opens, and out he comes. I think that's the next time we get a shout like that, and all of us will just, just shout and we'll come undone with emotion. Yeah, that's how we should be about this. But anyway, so this is the Red Sea. Okay, so you got that now. Victory, they are on spiritual mountaintop, very, very, very high. Okay, now verse 22, the very next day. I mean, this is not a month later, this is not a year later. I mean, maybe they had, it doesn't tell us exactly, maybe they had one extra day of partying or whatever, but the point of the passage as you read it is, it's right after this. Right after they have given this shout to God that must have echoed for miles across the Red Sea, right after it, the next day, we read this. Verse 22, 15 verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now, I want to just pause there again, because this is common human experience. Common human experience. They're on the mountaintop, and when you're on the mountaintop, you never want to leave the mountaintop, do you? And it says here, this is the only time we see this, whenever, in the rest of these stories where they're in the wilderness and Moses is leading them places, we never see this statement that he had to make them move somewhere. They didn't want to go. They wanted to just stay here. Let's build a temple, a tabernacle, an altar. Let's build it right here by the Red Sea. We just saw the most incredible thing we're ever going to see. We just experienced God in such a powerful way. It was so amazing. Why would we leave? He has to make them, but right after this, he makes them leave. You know what? We, it, we're, the same, we're the same way today. We're exactly the same way today. I mean, when you're on the mountaintop, right? When you're on the mountaintop, it is easy to love God. It is easy to pray. It is easy to hear God. It is easy to do every good and loving thing that, you, that the Bible says you should do. All of that is very easy on the mountaintop. And so we think to ourselves, why would God ever take us down from the mountaintop? Why would we ever leave? Because I'm everything he wants me to be up here. I feel so good. But what does God do? He does not even let them sit up there for a month. He doesn't let them sit there for a year. The next day, he takes them straight out into the wilderness. You know, I talk to young people sometimes, and uh, one of the common things I often run into is they, you know, people who have gotten saved like a year ago or two years ago, and they'll tell me how, you know, when they first got saved, they had basically what amounts to, they explain all these things. They, they love to pray. They just had all these wonderful experiences with God. They could hear his voice. Everything was amazing. Essentially, 
In the months after they got saved, their life consisted of many feelings of awesomeness. They just felt awesome. This is so amazing. And then somewhere along the way, the feelings of awesomeness left. And they come to me in a panic or to some other pastor of the church, and they're in a panic. How do I get the feelings of awesomeness back? And the thing I have to tell them, and I have to tell you today, if you're here like that, and you're, you're trying to go back, you're trying to get back up on the mountaintop, the thing I have to tell you today is, God's command to you is not to follow the feelings of awesomeness. That's not, your job isn't to, is, to, is not to follow the feelings of awesomeness. Your job is to follow Jesus. And Jesus will not leave you on a mountaintop. He never does. He didn't with Israel. God says, I mean, thank God for the mountaintops. Love that we get to have some mountaintops in our lives. But God says to the Israelites here, this incredible story. And then they danced and they wept for hours and they sang to God and they loved it. And the next day God says, time to go. And he leads them down into the wilderness. And the reason he does that, see, Jesus will not leave you on the mountaintop. He will always, he'll just leave for just a little bit. You get to, wow, awesome. Then he leads you down into meadows, valleys, wildernesses, canyons, whatever. He leads you down, and I'll tell you why. It's because he wants to grow. He does not want to leave you as a baby. You, you cannot mature. You can't grow on a mountaintop. You can't. So he leads you down because it's in the wilderness, it's in the valleys, it's in the meadows, down off the mountaintop. That's where you grow in your heart in this strength of seeking him and persevering in him even when it doesn't feel good. And that's where he grows you in humility and perseverance and godliness and patience and love and all these sorts of things. All of these things that he knows are very important for you to have but he knows that none of those things grow apart from uncertainty, apart from suffering, apart from fear and some of these different things. He knows that they only grow in that environment of stress. So he takes us up on the mountaintop, yes, and he goes, I love that. I love doing that for you. That was so fun, and now let's leave. I don't want to leave. We got to leave. I don't want to leave. And then you got these Christians. He's dragging them by the feet down the mountain, and they're trying to claw their way back up because <laughs> they want the feelings of awesomeness back. Let's get back and let's keep going here. Verse 23. When they came to Merah, they could not drink the water of Merah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Merah, which, by the way, means bitter. Anyway, <laughs> just in case you missed that. Verse 24. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Can you believe this? Three days. Three days. I mean, I, I, I don't know which day of the week the parting of the Red Sea happened. I don't know. But let's just imagine. Let's imagine it was Monday. Monday, you walk through the ocean on dry land. Walls of water both sides. Water sweeps over the Egyptians and wipes out your enemies. That's Monday. Thursday, just three days later, you're out in the desert and there's no water and you are grumbling and complaining. And you go, how can they do that? You know, ce n'est pas possible in français, right? How, how on earth do you go from this unbelievable experience of God to grumbling in three days? I mean, you would think, right? You would think if, if, if you saw the Red Sea parted and the Egyptian army wiped out on Monday, you would think there would be some residual 
faith left on Thursday. I mean, even if you had really bad days Tuesday and Wednesday, there's got to be some residual trust and faith still left on Thursday, right? How could they do that? And we think to ourselves, well, and, and we all do this next one. For sure we do. For sure. We read these stories and we think to ourselves, even if we don't do it consciously, we do it subconsciously. We read this story and we think, okay, Red Sea parting Monday, grumbling Thursday, and we think to ourselves, these Israelites were the most pathetic, stubborn, faithless people in the history of mankind. That's what we think. And even if you don't consciously say it, that's how the vast majority of us as Christians, that's how we read the whole Old Testament. We read all the, the we, there's so many stories in here of their foibles, and they turned to idols, and they turned away from God. And we, we, we put ourselves above them, and we think to ourselves, they are just a particularly pathetic group of people. And even if you don't consciously think it, we put ourselves in a position, we think, if I had been there, I wouldn't have done that. That's how we read the scriptures. If I had, if I had been there at the Red Sea, I would not have been one of the ones grumbling on Thursday, right? I mean, I would have been one of the ones that would have come there and said, well, what's God going to do now? And prayed to him, right? That's what we think. And the thing, I, I, I want to just hit that really hard right now because we, we read the whole Old Testament that way. I've told you in this series so far that one of the problems with how we read the Bible is whenever we read about people like Moses, we think, oh, he was a superhero, so we don't identify. And I've told you, you've got to see that Moses was a regular human being like us. You've got to just bring him in here. There's a second thing we do on the other side is you read all the stories about the bad stuff the Israelites did, and we think they were more pathetic than we are. And so we don't identify with them, and we don't get convicted. Here's the thing you have to realize about the Israelites. They were human beings just like us. When God, you know, took the Israelites out of Egypt, he did not pick a subspecies of humans. He picked people. They had hair and eyes and teeth and hearts. They had, they had wives and husbands and kids. They had hopes and dreams. They had ups and downs, emotions. They, had, they were people. God did not pick some subspecies of human beings that was somehow, you know, inferior to us modern Western Christians. We just are so different than they are. The thing you have to realize, when you read the Old Testament, you're not reading about pathetic people. You're reading about yourself. You're reading the story of people, and you are one. Everybody, everyone in here, except for Jesus, is just a regular human being. Just a regular human being. So when you read about them in here, the thing you have to realize is you're reading about yourself. And that's when the conviction starts to come home. You're reading about yourself. Now I know I still haven't convinced some of you because some of you are thinking, there's no way I would have done it. Let me tell you something here. Most of us here today, many of us, maybe I'll say many, that's nicer. No, you know what? It's not even this service. Like I said last week, it's the other services. The you guys in here are pretty good. But most of the people in the other services who would have been there and seen the Red Sea parted would have grumbled on Thursday. And you say, there's no way, there's no way. Well, here's how I know. Because I know, and because you say, well, I'm a Christian. I wouldn't have done it. I got Jesus in my heart. Well, here's the thing. I know lots of people who call themselves Christians and lots of people who say they have Jesus in their heart. Pretty much everybody, every one of us in here would say that. And I know lots of Christians who grumble about their spouse. Oh, that's different. Right? He's such a jerk. Well, that might be, but I know lots of Christians. They grumble about their spouse. 
They grumble about their coworkers. They grumble about their boss. They grumble about their pastor. They grumble about their church. They grumble about all kinds of things. I know all kinds of Christians that grumble and gripe. And again, we think, well, that's, we always think it's different. That's different. It's different than what the Israelites did. How is it different? Are our reasons for grumbling better than theirs? I mean, let's think about their reason for grumbling. Their reason for grumbling was they were in the middle of the desert with no water to drink. That's like a, if there's a legitimate one, that's got to be it. There, our reasons are not better for grumbling than theirs were. In fact, I think, if anything, we are worse than they are because we say we have Jesus in our hearts. They couldn't say that. We, if anything, we should be light years ahead of them. But we grumble and gripe just like them. We're no different than they are. You say, yes, surely we're different because if, if we didn't see those miracles, that's, that's actually the real reason we think we're different. We think if we had been there at the Red Sea, then we wouldn't have grumbled on Thursday. Well, let me show you, I want to show you something in Scripture now. Jesus actually taught, uh, taught against that in a New Testament. We have this feeling like if I had been there at the Red Sea, I would not have grumbled over there in the desert at Merah. And, and it's false. And the reason it's false is because, oh, better be careful there. Uh, the reason we, the reason it's false is because we have the stories of the Red Sea here and we still grumble. You say, oh, having the Bible stories about the miracle isn't the same as seeing the miracle. You know what Jesus taught in the New Testament? He said, he's taught in a few places. I'm gonna show you one in Luke 16 right away. He said, if the words you read in here don't give you faith, seeing the miracle wouldn't do anything different. That's what he said. So you think the Israelites had an advantage over you because they saw the Red Sea part and they grumbled, wow, that's, that's pathetic. When I grumble, it's different. I haven't seen that kind of a miracle. Jesus said, you're reading about all the miracles and you still grumble? You're no different than they are. I want to show you this. Jesus actually taught this in several places in the New Testament, but one main one that I love is a parable he taught in Luke chapter 16. Let me just give you a little bit of background. I'm going to show it to you. Luke 16, one of the most fascinating parables in the entire New Testament. And what happens in Luke 16 is Jesus tells a story about the rich man, a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. Don't confuse this Lazarus with the real person Lazarus who Jesus raised from the dead. This is just a person in a story Jesus is telling. So Jesus tells about a rich man, poor man named Lazarus. They both die, and they go to Hades. And the rich man goes to the bad hell side of Hades, and the poor man Lazarus goes to the good side of Hades, which Jesus calls Abraham's bosom. By the way, some of you right now, you've got 100 question marks. Two sides to Hades? Okay, we're not going there right now. I do have a whole paper written about a short one, and it's very fascinating. The Bible tells us all about it. And if you are interested in it, you can email me this week and I will email it back to you and you can read it yourself, okay? But nonetheless, Jesus tells a story. The rich man's on the hell side and he is suffering and in torment. Horrible. So he calls over this chasm to the good side of Hades and he calls over to Father Abraham, Abraham from, from Genesis. And he says to Abraham, I want you to raise this poor man Lazarus who's also dead and he's with Abraham on the good side. I want you to raise Lazarus from the dead and send him to my brothers, because the rich man has five brothers. He says, I want you to raise Lazarus from the dead, send him to my brothers, so that he can warn them, so that my brothers don't have to join me here in hell, where it's torment. And his reasoning is, 
that he thinks if his brothers would see a miracle like someone rising from the dead, for sure they would believe. And now Jesus, now he's telling the story, so it's Abraham talking the story, but it's not actually Abraham, it's Jesus telling the story, it's Jesus speaking. Jesus gives a fascinating response to that reasoning. I want you to see this now, okay? That's real. We'll start in verse 27, Luke 16, 27. And he, the rich man said, then I beg you, Father, Abraham, to send him Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Now, look what Abraham's going to say. Because we would all agree with that reasoning. Yeah, if they would see someone rise from the dead, they would get saved. Look what Abraham says to them. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they have the Bible. They didn't have the New Testament yet, so they only had the Old Testament. That's what Moses and the prophets are. Abraham says, they have the Old Testament. Let them hear them. But the rich man said, no, Father Abraham, okay? The Bible's not enough. No, no. If someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. They need to see a miracle. Okay? Verse 31, Jesus says back to him, he's speaking through Abraham in the story, he said to him, listen to this now, this is absolute powerful statement. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, if they don't hear the Bible, neither will they be convinced even if someone should rise from the dead. That is not just for unsaved people, that's for us too. You and I, the Israelites didn't have an advantage over us in seeing it with their physical eyes. We have God's word. So they saw the miracle with their eyes. We get to read about that miracle and all the rest of them God did in the Bible. They grumbled three days later. We close our Bibles in the morning from our five-minute devotional right before we run off to work and then we go out and we grumble. We're no different. Absolutely no difference there. Some of you go, but no, but some of us are different. And you're right, by the power of the Holy Spirit, some of us are different by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I know that because Moses was a regular person too. So most of the regular people there who saw the Red Sea, and they were just like us, most of the ones who saw that went on to grumble three days later. But Moses was also a regular person just like us. And he went out in the desert three days, and he didn't grumble and complain. So what's the difference between the two groups of people? What's the difference between one group of people who can see a miracle of God and have an experience with God and they can grumble three days later and another group of people who they don't grumble and they don't complain. And the difference is not who calls themselves a Christian, who doesn't, because lots of people call themselves Christians and they are no different than non-Christians. The title Christian doesn't have any power in it whatsoever. So what's the difference? Verse 25, and he, that's Moses, cried to the Lord. The difference is, some people, this is stage four, we talked about last week. The people who go into the presence of God don't grumble and complain. Moses didn't grumble and complain because he turned to God and cried out to him. That's the difference. Calling yourself a Christian doesn't do anything for your life, power-wise. It's God who has the power. It's only when you walk with him and his spirit begins to fill you, that's when you and I change. So you can call yourself, the Israelites, if they lived today, they would have called themselves Christians. They all believed in God. They all watched him split the seas. Believing in God doesn't do anything. But it's those who walk with him. His power flows into your life and your life is changed. Well, let's look at what God does now in answer to Moses' prayer. Moses turns to God instead of grumbling and complaining, oh Lord, Help us. 
He goes into his presence. And this is what happens. And the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what it, that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am Yahweh your healer. So good ending to the story. Three things I want you to notice. First of all, this passage tells us why did God send the Israelites out into the middle of the desert in the first place? I mean, he intentionally leads them to a place. I mean, he's sovereign. He knows what he's doing. He's all-powerful. He intentionally leads them out into the desert to a place where they can't drink the water. Why does he do it? It tells us in this passage. It says he led them out there because he was testing them. Now, I want you to notice the word there, them. He was not just testing Moses. Last week we looked at how God tested Moses and what I called the press into God test where God wanted to see if Moses, when he ran into trouble, would come to him in prayer. But now this test isn't just for Moses because God doesn't just want our leaders to press into his presence. God doesn't just want Pastor Ray to press into his presence and Grace and myself. He doesn't just want the leaders of the church to press into his presence. What God was doing was he was testing them. He wanted a whole nation of people, men, women, and children, who any time they ran into trouble, would their automatic gut reaction would not be to grumble and complain, not quit, not fall apart. Their automatic reaction is to come, Father God, help us. That's what he was looking for. Most of them failed the test. Fortunately, Moses passed the test, because that brings me to the, the second thing, which is what God does in response to Moses' prayer. Moses goes to God in prayer. Again, remember, think about this. Moses is responsible for the lives of a couple million people, plus all their animals. He's, he's got a weight on his shoulder. When he comes to God in prayer, there's, there's stress there. Because God, you've led me to a place where they can't even drink. God, help me. And what does God do? He opens Moses' eyes and shows him a log. God, help us. And God says, hey, there's a log. Now, the Hebrew there that is, that is translated log, it literally actually means tree. In most places throughout the Old Testament, it's translated tree. Like in the Garden of Eden, there's a tree of knowledge and good and evil. There's a tree of life. All those trees, it's the same word here that is translated log. It just means tree. So God, Moses goes to God, God, oh, they can't drink. Help us. And God opens his eyes and shows him a tree. And Moses cuts down this tree, puts it into the water, and there's something about this tree. It's got some kind of medicinal properties or something. And whatever it is about the water that makes it undrinkable, when he puts the tree in there, it neutralizes it. Now they can drink. And I just find this so fascinating because Moses goes to God, and God help us, and the provision is right there. Just the right tree, just the right place, just the right time. And can I say to you here this morning, that is no accident. See, the thing you have to realize, this is the thing you have to think about God. Okay, he knows all this stuff in the future. Hundreds of years, decades, thousands, you know, before time even begins. God knew that he was one day going to bring his children to this piece of bitter water named Merah. He knew it. I mean, decades beforehand, while the Israelites were still in the most intense bondage in Egypt, and there's no, they have no hope of coming out, Moses is still lost somewhere out in the Midianite desert. He's nowhere even, he's years away from being called by God the burning bush. God already knows that someday, he's already looking at this pond of bitter water, and he knows that someday he's going to bring his children here. And God in his love plans ahead. 
And I just imagine them. You know, I don't know what kind of tree this was. So is it 40? I don't know how long it took it to grow or how big it was. But, you know, third, I, I just imagine him 30 or 40 years beforehand. 30 or 40 years beforehand. The Israelites are still in bondage. Moses is still out in the desert somewhere, years away from being called back into ministry. And, and year, decades before. And I just imagine God planting this tree. Exactly the right kind of tree. And I imagine him watching over this tree for the next few years, making sure that no storm blows it over. Making sure it doesn't get any insects or disease that's going to knock it down. He's, he watches over this tree. And then, you know, 30, 40, 50, however many years later, after he plants this tree there sovereignly, he leads the Israelites here. They can't drink the water. Moses comes to him in prayer, and God says, I got it all. It's all provided for you. You know, it reminds me of something. This past Tuesday, as I said, we went and picked up Joy from, from camp. It's a shorter camp. They only go three, four days at that age. She's only grade one. And um, so on Tuesday, we went. To, it was the end of the camp, and we went to pick her up from Bird River there. And so that's a couple-hour drive or whatever. So we drove out there, me and LaDawn and the two younger kids, and, and then we picked her up, and we were getting back in the van to drive home. And it was 12.30, and I hadn't, I hadn't thought about lunch at all until I sat down in the van, and I'm like, oh, I am famished. I am weak with hunger suddenly. And I say this to LaDawn, and she reaches behind, and she pulls out this bag, and out of this bag, she proceeds to pull a wrap made exactly with all the stuff I love to have in a wrap. And I'm like, I'm just falling in love with her all over again, right? It's like, oh, <laughs> you are awesome. And, and then she pulls out this cake, and then she pulls out this fruit. And I mean, the, the first half hour, me and the, and the younger kids, we're just stuffing our faces with this bounty. And I'm like, oh, I love you. And you're amazing, right? So... Now, that's love, isn't it, by the way? That's love. <laughs> and isn't this, just wrap up for just a second. Isn't it true? Uh, guys and women totally, us guys, we just aren't wired that way, are we? I mean, if she hadn't come along, it would have just been me and the kids. I mean, us guys, we just pack everybody up, drive two hours in the middle of nowhere. We don't think about nothing. We get there, what are we going to eat? And, <laughs> but LaDawn, she thinks ahead and she knows at some point, the, you know, Chris and the kids are going to get hungry. And so she plans that. I didn't even see her doing all this stuff. And she puts together exactly the food we need, the food we love, packs it all up, puts it in a van. And then at just the right time, we all get her, oh, we're going to be hungry. And pulls it out and feeds us. Amazing, right? That is exactly what God did for Israel at Merah. And he does it for us all the time. He knows exactly where you're going. He plans in advance. He loves us so much. He knows exactly the journey he's going to take us on in our lives. And he goes decades in advance, years in advance, and in every one of those Mara places that he has for you in your life, he plants a tree. And the only catch is, there's only one catch with the way God does it. And the catch is that he conceals he conceals the provision. He conceals the answer to our prayer. See, when Moses and the Israelites got there, they didn't know cutting down the tree would do it. They got there, all they know is that there's bitter water. It's only by going to God, Moses goes to God, God opens his eyes and shows him a tree. If he doesn't go to prayer, if Moses does what everybody else was doing, grumbling and complaining instead of crying, if, or instead of praying, if Moses grumbles and complains instead of prays, if he does what everybody else does, a whole bunch of them are going to die because there's no water. But he goes into prayer, 
and there's provision already right there. It's all been planned out years in advance. God is so excited. He loves us. And you go to him in prayer, and he opens your eyes, and there it is all along. You say, well, why would God do that? Like, why not just give us what we need, right? Like, why, why the concealing it? I'll tell you why. It's in his wisdom and his goodness. Oh, it's so good that he does this. If he didn't, we'd be really messed up. Because here's the thing. There's, there's two levels. We have needs on two levels. On one need, on the one level, all of us as human beings, we need food and water and shelter. We need. If we don't get those things, we die. It's no, no question. We have, those are legitimate needs we have. But here's the thing about those needs. Food, water, and shelter. They only give you temporary sustenance. I mean, you can have all the food and water in the world, still someday you're going to die. We're all going to die. So they're only temporarily meeting our needs. I mean, we do need them. If we don't have them, we die. But they don't give us life forever, and they also don't give us life on the inside. They don't give us joy or hope or peace. So we have those needs, it's true, but we have a deeper need. We have a need for God himself. He is the source of all life. He is the only one who can give you life forever. He's the only one who can give you life on the inside. The problem with us as human beings is we often default, we only think about the needs we can see. We spend all of our lives chasing the food, water, shelter, whatever else things we need so that we never go to God and meet the ultimate need, the one that's really important, which is the need we have for his life to flow through us. And God knows this. And in his wisdom, he knows that if he just always gave us this stuff and we didn't even have to ask him, he knows that we would spend most of our lives, we would never even think about our real need, which is up here. And so in his brilliance, in his wisdom, in his goodness, he says, okay, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to lead him all through different wildernesses and different canyons and different dangerous places. And in each of those places, I'm going to have provision because God does like to take care of these temporary needs. It's not that he doesn't like to do it. I'm going to provide for them that, but in order for them to get the provision, they're going to have to come for me, to me because I'm going to hide it. And that way, what he's doing is he uses our temporary needs as bait to pull us into himself and then we go to him, what we find is we get our real need met, which is eternal life. And then he opens up our eyes and he says, oh, and I'll take care of your lesser needs too. He loves to do that as a father. But you have to go to him. Let's close this off now. The same God we see at work in Exodus 15 is the same God who works today. He's no different. His ways are no different. His, his goals are no different. And that's why I know when I speak to a group like this, I know for sure because he was working that way back then. He's doing it now. And I, no doubt there are many of you here today, he has got you cornered at some mera. He has got you cornered somewhere in your life at a place where the water is undrinkable. And there's 100,000 different ways he can do that for us. For some of you here today, he's got you in your finances. For some of you, it's with your kids. For some of you, it's with your business. For some of you, it's with some pain that will not go away, some health issue. But he has got you cornered in a place. And he has made a provision. He has long ago, he knew you were going to be here. He planted a tree, but he's not going to show it to you until you get your ultimate need in him met first. You're going to have to turn to him in prayer. And so what I want to do now is I want, we're going to do the same thing as we've done in this whole series. I want you to just bow your heads. I want you to close your eyes. I want you to hold out your hands. Bow your heads. Close your hand. Close your eyes. Hold out your hands. 
Because you do not need a message from Chris Dirksen. What you need is a touch from God. That's what you need. That's what helps you out. What I'm preaching you today, I'm telling you to go to him. Your, your thirst has not gotten quenched here at church today. Your thirst only gets quenched in him. In your problem, in your situation, where he has you cornered, you have got to go to him this week. You've got to go to him. And so I just want to pray for you. Heavenly Father, first of all, we want to start by saying that we love you. You are so good. We, we don't love you enough. We ask that you would help us to love you the way we should, but we love you. Even with a weak love, we love you. You are good. We confess that instead of praying and coming to you in faith, often we grumble and we complain. We repent of that faithless, stubborn, pathetic behavior. And Father, we ask you, I ask right now, even as we sing this last song, as I pray here, Father, I pray that you would begin to touch people's hearts. I pray that you would touch every heart in this room here today. I pray that you would draw us into yourself. Father, we are committing this week, we're going to come after you. We're going to come into your presence. We're going to cry out to you. Lord, I pray that you would open up our eyes to see the trees you've planted for us. Open up our eyes to the provision you've hidden in our lives. Meet with us. Touch us this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.